think, let's see, this is a little over, a, a little bit over two years in our study of the Gospel of John, and uh, it has been, it has been an eye-opening uh, study. Although we did find this morning in our in our video uh, session on the Holy Spirit downstairs that uh, that session that section in John seven where Jesus said it, said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water could refer to and very likely refers to the Lord Jesus Himself who flows out through the Spirit He gives the Spirit to His people and. It is a constant flow of the water of the Spirit in our lives. That's very interesting to me. I never really saw that as being Jesus. I always thought of that as being us. The rivers would flow out of us. But uh, it seems to fit so much better with Him. Now as we look at John 11, we've seen the events of this day in the life of Christ and those who were there, sort of like, uh, sort of like the day of when the JFK was assassinated. If you're old enough to remember that, <coughs> you'll know just about where you were on that day. I was in the sixth grade. I remember, I remember being in the hallway of the school and teachers running down the hallway, weeping and crying. And then we found that uh, president had been assassinated. And uh, they let out school and all of that. So I remember very distinctly that day. I also remember where I was on 9-11. Most of you would remember that, too, if you were here in, at 9-11. <coughs> you know where you were. You know what was taking place. And, and uh, those kind of things stick in our minds. They stay with us. I'm sure that... The same would be true of everyone who was there at the tomb that day when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, if you had lived then, uh, people would have asked you, where were you when Lazarus was raised from the dead? Oh, I was right there. I saw it. I remember very distinctly what took place. And the fame of that went out. Everyone began to hear what had happened. I mean, how could you keep it quiet? He raised someone from the grave who had been dead for four days. And all of a sudden, there he is. And he calls out his name. And Lazarus comes floating out of that tomb. And I believe he did float out. I don't believe he hopped or, or waddled. I think it was a, an absolute supernatural event. And people saw it. And what a beautiful picture of salvation. And so, to recap all of these events, we see that Jesus and his disciples came back to Judea for the express purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. And this was so that God's glory could be seen through his Son and the disciples would believe. That's why the, this miracle took place. <coughs> Martha and Mary <coughs> both lament over the fact that Jesus had not been there because in their minds, if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. He would have healed him from his sickness. Jesus reveals to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life, that death 
obeys his command. And at the cave entrance, Jesus weeps out of love for his friends and because of the pagan display of the mourners. He commands that the stone be moved from the entrance of the cave. Martha objects, saying to the Lord that there would be an odor of decay after four days in the tomb. The stone is then removed. Jesus calls out loudly for Lazarus to come out of the cave where, to where he is standing. And the dead man comes out and floated to the Lord for he was bound head to toe with linen strips and a sheet underneath. Jesus then commands the helpers to unbind him and let him go. And now that the miracle is over, as with all the miracles that Jesus performed, there were some consequences that followed. We see it in verses 45 to 40 and 46 that some people believed and others didn't believe. And any time there is a spectacular event that takes place, people who witness it will have or will get many different opinions of what happened. People see things from different vantage points. Things happen to people differently in their minds when an event of this nature takes place. And so... The people who witnessed this amazing sign came to two different conclusions. The first conclusion is that there were, there were those in the group that saw the sign as having come from God and they believed in Jesus. In other words, they saw what the Lord had done and they trusted in Him as the Lord, as Messiah. They believed in him. That word believed means they trusted in him as Lord. They saw him as the Messiah. They, they trusted that he was the one that could raise the dead and they believed in him. It's the same kind of belief that is that is true as when one places their confidence in the gospel message. It is a commitment of one's heart and life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His ability to save them and keep them and to forgive their sins and one day raise them up as He had promised to do. He is the resurrection and the life. These people had studied what had happened. They, they gazed upon it. They reflected on it. They pondered it. And they were convinced that He was the Messiah. I can almost, I can almost see Mary 
Going around to those who were there that day, Lazarus is now raised from the dead. And Mary is going around to each one saying, look, this is the Lord. This is what he did. Look, he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He'll save you from your sins. Can't you just see Mary doing that? And I think many of them probably heard her testimony. It reminds us of the faith of the Sumerians when, when the woman at the well had believed and she went into the village and she told everybody what had happened. Look, I found this man who told me everything I'd ever done. This is the Messiah. And then they said in verse 42 of chapter 4, No longer is it because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior who should come into the world. They saw it. They believed it. And they were saved as a result of it. Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. John 14, verse 6. And there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby people can be saved or whereby they must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This is the first reaction. This is the first thing that happened in this miracle. People believed and they were gloriously saved. But the second thing that happened... And happens every time that Christ is revealed, that His glory is revealed, that His gospel is revealed. There is a second thing that happens. There were those in the crowd that did not believe, even though they saw the miracle with their own eyes. Do you remember the... You remember when the rich man died and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He cried out, Sin! Send a messenger to my five brothers not to come to this horrible place. And what did, he, what did he hear? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. For they would not believe even if one rose from the dead. Always the same. The gospel goes out, the, the word of God goes out, people, some people are saved, but many, many others hear it, but they don't believe. And they continue on in their sin and in their hatred for Christ until the time comes when perhaps He will give repentance to those people and they will to, to believe. But many go on and they follow the broad way and they end up in destruction. This is what's happening right here. They believed what they saw with their eyes, but they did not demonstrate saving faith. They did not place their trust and their confidence in Christ as the Messiah, as the one who came to save them from their sins. We can see the preview of it. There are several reasons that this is true. Number one, in verses 49 to 52, it indicates that those in this group who believed in him comprised part of those who are mentioned in verse 52 as the children of God. Some became the children of God. 
and others didn't. Second, this was all done so that Jesus and the Heavenly Father would be glorified. And there is nothing that glorifies God more than the salvation of a soul. Now God is glorified in many ways. But the thing that glorifies Him most is when a sinner repents of their sin and comes to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4 if you would. Notice in this chapter Paul is, is writing and he is speaking about salvation and how that God saves people from their sins and he likens them to jars of clay. And he talks about salvation as the treasure that one holds in their heart. Christ, the treasure that has been given to them in their for the forgiveness of their sins and their repentance of them. Now notice, <coughs> if I could back up just a bit, I have verse 15 as a, as a text, but look back up to verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus Uh, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into His presence. Bring you, with you, into His presence. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm going to go into His presence and you're going to go into His presence too because of this salvation that He has given you. You hold it in this jar of clay, this body of flesh, which is nothing more than dust, the dust of the earth. Now, verse 15, for it is all for your sake. He did this for you so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving, notice that last phrase, to the glory of God. He is saying that when God saves people, the grace of God is extended through the gospel and he saves people. And the more people who hear it become, the more he saves and that salvation brings him glory. There's nothing that really glorifies God more than a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God. Because it's not them that, they're not, they're not the ones that save themselves. It's God that does the work. And therefore, it is God that gets the glory. Number three, the Pharisees obviously saw the people that reported the miracle to them as true believers. They don't know how to distinguish between the true believer and the non-believer. It's true in our world too. We live in a world where if anybody where anybody who says I'm a Christian is just taken at face value. But listen, to say you're a Christian, I like to say 
I'm a Bible Christian or a biblical Christian. Because the word Christian means nothing much to people anymore. And so, Pharisees obviously thought these people are believers and these people are coming to them. They're reporting what he had done. And they're saying to themselves, these people must be believers. They must believe in this guy. Verse 46 Excuse me, verse 48. And in the fourth thing, John makes a distinction between those who truly believed and those who only believed what they saw but had no commitment to Christ. Listen, words words are important, but when when it comes to being a believer, there better be more than just words. There better be a life that is changed. There better be a a life that is following the Lord, that is obeying the Lord. There better be a life that that is doing the works of God from a life that is filled with faith. Works alone won't save anyone, but faith alone won't either. It has to be faith that produces the work of God in a life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that faith alone in Christ is not the way of salvation. It certainly is. But there is a changed life that follows that. That's what I'm saying. Number five, there is a history of people. There was a history of people who saw Jesus' miracle. And they believed what they had seen. But it only produced a shallow faith that did not last. Listen to John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But listen to the next line. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew that there were people who believed but didn't believe truly, biblically. They only believed what they saw. There was no commitment. There was no following. There was no obedience. There's always more in this group than there is in the former group. Always. How do we know that? Because Jesus said... The way that leads to destruction is broad and many go in that way to destruction. But the, the narrow way, the narrow gate, only a few find it. And only a few enter into it. Few compared to the, to the population of the earth over time. Instead of rejoicing over the miracle, these people went to the Pharisees and reported it, which was far worse. They reported the incident to his enemies. They were collaborators with Satan. They didn't go to try to convince the Pharisees that he was the Christ. They went to report it 
to incite them against him again and encourage hostility. So, in verse 47, having gotten this information from these people, they called the council together. This is the Sanhedrin, the council of 70 elders of the Jewish people made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were constantly at odds with one another over what they believed. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did. So you have this constant battle back and forth among the elders of Israel. And so they're sort of frantic now. If you'll, we'll see what they said here in a moment. This is, I see this as sort of a, an emergency council. We're calling the council together. We've got to do something. What is, what is this man doing? Notice. Instead of looking at Jesus and looking for the signs that would point, that the scriptures point as the Messiah, instead of looking at him that way, they saw only the effect of what he had done and how it would impact them. And so they came together and they counseled among themselves with this question which reveals the true intent of their hearts. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. That should have triggered in their minds, especially the Pharisees who knew the scriptures, who knew what the, what the Messiah would do when he came. But it didn't. Surely the, the sign of healing the blind man from chapter 9 is fresh on their minds here. Surely the signs from chapter 5 and 6, the, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And now the raising of a dead man. But as usual... They were not worried about the people following Jesus. They, they, were, they were worried about losing their place and their nation. Now that sounds noble, but it really isn't. Because these people were, had a heavy hand of authority on the nation of Israel and they ruled with intimidation placing all kinds of rules and regulations upon the people that would be for their own good, the, the council's own good, rather than for the good of the people. They were, they, were they were worried about losing their lucrative position of being in the council. That's what they were worried about. Their hearts and their minds were centered on this world and the things of this world. Listen, as in all politics, every council member of the Sanhedrin were wealthy. They were all wealthy. 
Name one politician in Washington that's not wealthy. They all are. And many of them, that's why they're there. Because they know that when they make it there, they'll be wealthy. And they'll have power. They have forgotten that it's us who they work for. These people on the Sanhedrin had forgotten why they were there. And they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come. And they will take away both our place and our nation. Now that word place indicates or primarily speaks of Jerusalem and the temple. These people served and worked in the temple. That's where they met. The temple was their place. It was like the capital building for them. Now, it's a bit of an exaggeration to say everyone will believe in him. But in their minds, this is what they're seeing. There are people who do believe in him, and there are people who say they believe, but they don't really, but they don't know the difference. And so the place being the temple over which they had command, and the nation although they weren't as concerned about the nation as they were about themselves, which is typical of most politicians. They must have had in mind what the Romans would do if they heard that one had risen, had ra- had risen from, uh, raised people from the dead and see them as a political messiah. What would Rome then do? Rome would... Squash them. They would, Rome would have seen it as a revolt. They must have feared for their lives as well because they said, they said in verse uh, 48, they will come and take away. That's a very strong word, take away. It means to eliminate. It means to terminate. To end. It has idea of it has the idea many times of killing or murdering someone, doing away with them. So not only are they afraid of losing their, their lucrative lifestyle, they're afraid that the Romans will come and kill them. But notice what came first. It wasn't the nation or its people. It was themselves. That's always the way it is with false teachers. All these false teachers you see and hear on the on the airwaves, on radio, on TV, all of them, all of them look at their lives. What what kind of life do they live? They live a lucrative, wealthy life with all kinds of things here. They have their reward. They have their reward now. And the people under them suffer. People that they're supposed to be leading 
but they are, end up being people that they take advantage of. Now notice verse 49 and following there. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them. Now, Caiaphas is at this time the high priest. He is the son-in-law of Annas, who was the high priest before him. But one of them, Caiaphas, he's mentioned nine times in the New Testament. I find that extraordinary. Nine times. Each time he is seen in the scriptures, he is seen as a power-hungry and evil part of the Jewish hierarchy. Josephus records that his name was Joseph, who is called Caiaphas. The meaning of the name Caiaphas is not fully known, but some have interpreted it as being a physiognomist. Now, when I saw that word, I thought, what in the world is a physiognomist? A physiognomist is someone who looks at an individual and tries to determine their character by their facial features or the lines in their face or the expressions of the face. So obviously Caiaphas had the ability to be able to read people, to look at them and, and know or, or at least believe that he know, knew what kind of person they were, what their character was. Somewhat of a fortune teller, if you will, or a, a prophet in that way. So when he spoke, they listened. I mean, after all, he was the high priest, but he had a very forceful personality. And his words set up the path that the council would take in condemning Jesus and putting him to death. Caiaphas was appointed to the place of high priest by Valerius Gratus, a Roman governor who was the governor before Pontius Pilate. I found it interesting that the Romans gave the post of high priest to the Jews. At any rate, William Hendrickson writes this. Caiaphas was a rude and sly manipulator, an opportunist who did not know the meaning of fairness or justice, and who was bent on having his own way by hook or by crook. It is clear from the passages in which he is mentioned. He did not shrink from shedding innocent blood. What he himself ardently craved for selfish purposes, he made to look as if it were the one thing needful for the welfare of the people. He was a true politician. Self-serving. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 66, 
we see his hypocritical character displayed while feeling glee on the inside over the outcome of the trial concerning Jesus. He tore his priestly garments, which was a, an expression of grief and sorrow, but it was all hypocritical. The truth is that Caiaphas was an, en an envious person and he envied Jesus' popularity in ministry. We see it in chapter 27, verse 18. For, G for he, that is Jesus, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It wasn't for the people. It was for themselves. Here in verses 49 and 50, we see him using his frustration and his influence to move the council in final condemnation of Jesus. Now up to this point, the council had not been unified in their view of who Jesus was. If you'll recall, back in chapter 7, the council, they, the Pharisees sent out guards to bring Jesus and to them so they could arrest him. But when the guards came back and said, no one spoke ever spoke like this man, they, they began to banter back and forth about him. And in verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said... Does not our law, does our law judge a man without first giving him hearing or learning? And they replied, are you from Galilee also? Are you one of his also? See, they were, they were not settled. But now we have the council, the whole council, condemning the Lord. So what, did Caiaphas, what, what Caiaphas didn't realize was that in saying these things, he was fulfilling God's will concerning redemption. He didn't know it, but he was. Of course, it was all under the guise of noble patriotism, but all he really wanted was this obstacle, this man who was doing all these signs taken out of the way. That's what he wanted. And that's what they all wanted in the end. So that they could rise back to their positions of fame and authority and power and glory. When they walked through the streets, people bowed to them. And now that was in jeopardy. So let's look at the prophecy for a moment. Notice it in, notice it, uh, in verses, let me get back there, uh, in verse 51, uh, in verse 50, let's go back to verse 50. You know nothing in all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now that was a true prophecy. But he didn't know that. 
So let's look at it. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. That word for in verse 51 means instead of, in exchange for the nation. One man to die for the people. If you'll recall, they suggested that Barabbas be that one man. But no, they wanted, in the end, they wanted Christ dead. For he was the one that was doing all the signs. Put Jesus to death, the nation would be saved. But the Jews sealed their own doom. In, in doing that, in, in t- arresting Jesus and putting him to death, because it wasn't but just a few years later, in 70 A.D., that the Romans did come in to Jerusalem and killed more than a million of them on crosses around Jerusalem and, took the, and the others fled. And Jerusalem was emptied. The nation of Israel was no more. And it took, it took 1,878 years for the Jewish nation to come back and be declared as a nation again. And now we see that Israel is surrounded by its enemies. And the world seems to be anti-Semitic. I find it appalling that demonstrations for Hamas, in favor of Hamas, are taking place all around our country. God will never allow the Israelites to be destroyed. He will never allow it. And I don't know how this is all going to play out. And I don't know exactly how it fits into the end time schemes. But it sure looks like, it sure looks like what Ezekiel prophesied, the Gog and Magog war. Because now Turkey has voiced its opposition to Israel. So we'll just have to wait and see. Wait and see what happens. The beauty in the words that Caiaphas uh, said was that in them, God indicated what he was going to do. It has been remark- it has a remarkable resemblance to chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. All children of God, born into his family by the new birth. They are called the children of God here. Now listen to this carefully. Excuse me. They are called the children of God here before they were ever born. The 
The reason for that is because God had chosen them before the creation itself to be His own. God knows who His children are. He chose them. And He chose them in eternity. Before the heavens or the earth were ever created. He knows all of them. The children of God are all of those who through time believe on Jesus for salvation. Listen to what the scripture says. But to all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's what receiving him means, believing in his name. He gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. No one can say, well, I'm a Christian because my daddy was a Christian. Or they can't say, I'm a Christian because I just decided that that's what I was going to be. Nor of the will of man. Nobody else can say to you, Oh, well, you're a Christian. Don't worry about it. No. It is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God that does this work. Nobody else can do it. Paul spoke of it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 10. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose. What was the purpose? Which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What's going to happen in the fullness of time? He is going to unite all things in Him both in heaven and on earth, in Him. The children of God coming together, united together from all time in Christ. Paul writes of it like this, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Speaking of those who come out of the graves first. We will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's not going to happen to anyone else. Only the children of God. Now, to bring this to fulfillment, it says in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Was that not the reason that he came? He came to die. He knew that's why he came. He knew what was ahead. He had told his disciples on many occasions that it would be the cross was where he was headed. They didn't understand it. He spoke of His resurrection and they didn't understand that. Even though they had seen with their own eyes they were there on the day when Lazarus was raised and Jesus was giving them a word picture, an absolute life 
illustration of what he does in salvation. They still didn't get it fully. For after Jesus had died, we see them huddled away from, away from everyone trying to hide until Jesus revealed himself to them. Jesus now is approaching the cross very quickly. Verses 54 to 57 really end this whole section in narrative. The Passover now is at hand. Jesus would become actually the Passover lamb in this Passover. And so everyone was looking for Jesus. They were looking for him because the Pharisees had said, if anyone knows where he is, report it to us so we can arrest him. This man's dangerous. This man is going to take away not only our place, but he'll take away your nation. And so God the Father, he was on God the Father's timetable. And God always has a timetable. Always. God never does anything without purpose and without being on time. He's never early and he's never late. It always happens exactly as he has planned it from the beginning. And so Jesus didn't expose himself to the public until the right time came. Now we're going to see him in chapter 12 uh, in the temple. A triumphal entry. That must have stuck in the Pharisees' uh, craw. If you understand that statement. I think that's a southern, maybe a southern statement. The Passover is about to begin and the Jews are looking for him. They're charging anyone to come forward so they could arrest him. And just as in chapter 7, verse 11, they were in a lather trying to find out information about him. And we'll see in chapter 12 that Lazarus becomes just as much of a target as Jesus Maybe not quite to the same degree. And so, he went to the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, with his disciples. And there he stayed until, in chapter 12, we find him back at Bethany, two miles away from Jerusalem, where his enemies had plotted his death. If there's anything that this teaches us, is that God is in control of time and the events of time. And nothing happens outside of His plan being fulfilled, His purpose being fulfilled. And as Paul said in Ephesians 1, the time will come when it all comes together in Christ. Just as He planned in eternity past, it will happen. The question I want to ask you this morning is, will you be there? Will you be a part of that children of God that He brings to Himself in one great gathering? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins and trusted Him to forgive you? Someone may say, well, I don't know for sure that I've done that. Well, then do it now. Right where you sit. Don't wait. 
You're not guaranteed another breath. Today is the day of salvation, he said. So trust him. Trust him now. Turn from your sins to Christ. He'll forgive you. And he'll save you. Make you part of his family. Now I know most of you and, and I know that I think I know that most of you know him. And I'm happy for that. But it's always the opportunity or the chance that someone may not. All right. Well, I'm finished for this morning. And right on time. <clears throat> All right, let's um, <clears throat> let me make an announcement or two here.